0: The, the reasons we believe and disbelieve are not strictly rational. A lot of them have to do with uh, hurt in certain communities. And so when, we, when I find a skeptic who can hardly talk to me about Christian faith, I realize they've been hurt, or they have something going on there, and I just need to back away and not treat them as if they are little little computers. Right. Here's a, the input. Here's and, the input. Here's yeah. the output. Right. i got to just stop that. Dr. Timothy
1: Keller reminding us to listen to those who believe differently than we do. And uh, he's with us today on Focus on the Family. Your host is Focus President Jim Daly,
2: and I'm John Fuller. John, today we're going to have a great conversation about our faith, uh, our philosophies, and our worldviews. It's so important for us to understand what we believe and why we believe it, and then how to knowledgeably and winsomely convey that to non believers, maybe even your teenagers. I mean, I'm having those conversations now with the boys about why we believe what we believe. Dr. Keller, I gotta say, is one of the greatest theologians of our day. And today, he's gonna challenge all of us to grow in our faith and what it means to be a Christ follower. Um, how to find our identity in Christ and how we can better grapple with suffering when we're faced uh, with that moment. Uh, Dr. Keller's book is called Making
1: Sense of God, An Invitation to the Skeptic. Now, Dr. Keller is the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, New York. He's a prolific author and a dedicated husband and father, And grandfather. And Jim, our listeners uh, might note that we recorded this at a hotel room in New York City. There are some, uh, we might call them ambient noises. It's always the New York sirens. I
2: don't know, the police are very busy in New York City. And and
1: this time we added an elevator that was right (laughs) adjacent to the room, so you might hear some up-and-down elevator noises as well. Regardless, this is a great conversation with Dr. Keller. Let's go ahead and listen.
0: To me, A church is, uh, you know, you could say fruitful, effective, uh, reaches people, not so much by the superficials, uh, like, you know, the the smoke machine or the skinny jeans or things like that, which you can tell just by looking at me, I couldn't get into anyway. (laughs) And I'm appreciative of that, actually. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But it's really, if you you actually, if you use the gospel to answer questions people are asking instead of questions that you find interesting or that... If you use the gospel to answer questions people are asking, a certain percentage of people will say, "That's interesting, that's exactly what I need to hear more about." And a certain percentage of them of them will be changed and converted. Not most. I mean, that's just the way it is. But if like it, if there's no conversions, if there's no one really coming, it's because you're you're taking the truth but you're actually using it to answer questions that people aren't asking. Making
2: sense of God, uh, would you say is really born out of that experience uh, engaging Absol- people that absolutely. are absolutely not so encouraged or absolutely. enthusiastic about God? Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. It, just, it
0: basically it's how it's a it's a conversation with people who are very skeptical.
2: Well, one of the things you've done at your church, which I thought was really interesting, you created a weekly discussion for people who are skeptical about God. Yeah. In fact, is there a God? That sounds contrary to what you'd want to be doing in a church, but on the other side, it's very refreshing, and that's how you bring people in. Let's sit down and talk. What are the ground rules for that? Meeting? Oh, that's great. Yeah, we. Uh
0: you're You're talking about something uh we we've called questioning Christianity now it's not the only way we do it but uh'cause there's there's a lot of other ways to do it but that particular uh program, which is very interesting uh it was not my brainchild but anyway the um <laughs> what it is is uh it's a series of talks on subjects that you let people know then a q and a for a fairly long time, and the the questions are texted in and then chosen. Uh, put up, you know. So, in other words, there's, a, there's a, a talk, a Q&A, then you break and you go upstairs and eat nice free hors d'oeuvres and talk for probably another hour or so. And I mean, since most of the people present are not believers, then yeah. you really are talking personally.
2: Let me ask you about that because one of the things I'm concerned about is the lost art of discipleship. I mean, that starts when someone in your area of influence is not a believer and you walk with them and you answer questions and you're right. part of their life and right. you invite them over for dinner. right? And, is that it's, it, it? Sounds like to me, it's very much like that. Yeah. How do you engage people? And God, it seems orchestrated us for relationship. Sure, he invented that.
0: Well, it's well. It's, one good thing is these events are never massive, massive. Right. So uh, you might have anywhere from fifty to a hundred, maybe non and Christian, non-believing people who come to this thing. So when you upstairs and you, you're talking. You're really talking to a lot of them. The goal, by the way of the question of Christianity, the goal is always to get people into other, more ongoing groups where they can have relationships. Yeah. yeah. So it's all, frankly, it's not only always been about relationships, it's even more important, because people are so fragile right now, a lot of people mm. can hardly stand to be in a public place and hear somebody say something that they don't agree with. They, it, can almost, they can almost hardly stand there. What's happening in our culture that is causing that kind of angst? angst? So my, well, my and my point on that is, you almost have to just have a lot of time relating to people. I mean in other words, getting people into big events and calling them to come forward, no offense to Billy Graham is just right. not probably the way things go now, yeah because it won't be people, as effective. they need relationships they need to be they need to be processed over a period of time. Um, now, your question, what's happening? <laughs> yeah, you know, you're talking to a pastor, not a social theorist or something like that. here's my best best thing I've read. Um, which is actually something that is in the book, the Making Sense book. Uh, a, a philosopher named Charles Taylor, uh, some years ago, who he's a French-Canadian, um, and and he wrote a book, a massive book, called Sources of the Self, which is considered like the philosophy book on where the modern understanding of identity came from. His basic thesis, among others, is that in the old days, you got your identity from some, from outside. So somebody like your parents said, here's who I want you to be. Here's the job I want you to have. Here's the kind of person I want you to be. And basically you got your identity from pleasing your parents or pleasing your community or or from your faith and you did what, so what other people said, here's what it means to be, here's who you should be. In a sense, you did what they said and if you lived up to their standards, then you felt like a good person. Right. Now, of course that is not very liberating in other words, you have to do what other people Right, there's say. issues
2: attached to yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> issues attached
0: to that, but it's stable. Right. Which means if you know if my parents think I'm great, then I feel pretty good. But the modern identity is you're not supposed to look to anybody else to tell you who you are. You go into yourself and you figure out who that is, you, who you are, and you decide who you want to be. But Charles Taylor says then when you come out and you say, here's who I want to be, then you, you are, you're in a fragile state because you have to get recognition from everybody and anybody who who just disagrees with you, you feel like is basically violating your identity. So in the past, you could take disagreement, today you can't because you're sort of desperate for validation and you don't have any one, you don't have one voice who says, you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased, that can silence all the other accusations. Uh, everybody else is out there, you know, criticizing you. But if you have this one voice that says, "No, no, you're okay," then that's fine. Well, modern people don't have that one voice. It's not their parents. It's not their society. It's not their God. Not their institutions. Not any institution. And so they uh, they take uh, disagreement as a uh, you know kind of undermining their very self, their or very being. Front. Yeah. And by the way, college professors and presidents and all that are, do not know what to do right now about even the most liberal and secular ones have never seen the kind of fragility that they see in their students. is that
2: interesting? And, you know, I think it's a good place. We'll probably punctuate our discussion over the next day or two with this statement. But for the Christian, where do we find our identity? Well,
0: uh, put it this way. We are supposed to find our identity in Christ, right. which is not just another authoritarian kind of identity. It's not just like you know, in traditional societies, this is what my tribe told me, this is what my parents told me. Okay, so we we're Christian, now this is what your religion tells you. It's not like that because Christianity says your identity is received and not achieved. Huh. In other words, you're not achieving your uh, the love of God, you receive it as a gift, which means your identity, your understanding of yourself as a good person, doesn't go up or down every week depending on your performance, whether it's religious or Uh, policing your parents. It doesn't go up and down. There's a stability to it. Uh, So it's a received, not achieved, and therefore it's really unique. It's not like either a traditional identity where you do what your parents told you or what your culture tells you, or modern identity. Uh, You might say traditional identity was stable but not very liberating. Uh, Modern identity is liberating but not very stable, and I could make the case that Christian identity is both liberating and Exactly, profoundly right. stable.
2: What keeps people, the skeptic, from having a, a true discussion about faith? Why do they get uh, so upset if they don't believe? And when you bring it up no. with somebody, why, why do they get so offended by having a discussion about God? Well, by the way, I also see
0: Christians who get real upset, harsh, defensive, <laughs> when they <laughs> are engaged on this too. I, I think. I think one of the reasons is because we're not completely rational people. We're not, as somebody once said, brains in vats. You know, just having, uh, you know, thoughts. We both believe and disbelieve, usually partly for rational reasons, but also for personal and social reasons. Which is to say, um, for example, you've got this whole area called sociology of knowledge. Uh, Peter Berger and other people kind of pioneered it, and it's impossible to read. it's impossible to read but so I have to talk to people who are smart who've read it who tell me this is basically what it's about sociology of knowledge is about the idea that generally the people who you respect the most their views tend to be most plausible to you that you're much more persuaded than you want to admit by the people that you like and respect and want to like you Hmm. And so your community, in other words, does to a great degree create your beliefs. I mean, it's uh, I'm not a, we're not relativists here when I say that. I just think it's fair to say. And so what will often happen is, if you were hurt by a community, then their beliefs are not plausible to you. And then you come to another community and they embrace you, and those beliefs are plausible to you. And I'm not saying that people lose, leave religion and get skeptical only for social reasons. Uh, or that I hope people don't become Christians just because oh, this is a loving group of people and I mean I want them to think too. Right. Um, if you uh, nevertheless the the reasons we believe and disbelieve are not strictly rational. A lot of them have to do with uh, hurt in certain communities and so we have our personal reasons too. So when we when I find a skeptic who can hardly talk to me about Christian faith, I realize they've been hurt or they have something going on there, and I just need to back away and not treat them as if they are little little computers. Right. Here's a, the input. Here's the input. Here's yeah. the output. Right. I got to just stop that. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not a Christian just simply because I said and reasoned myself into it. But on the but then you got to be careful not to to say that faith or lack of faith
2: is not got a rational base to it, of course it does. Mm. Let me me take us back to the discussion in the culture at large. Mm -hmm. There's so much around um, the validity of science and that science is the religion of the day and that if it can't be proven, it doesn't exist. That's exactly right. What is this uh, contrast between faith and science and how do we in the Christian community, people of faith, how do we not run from scientific data, but how do we find how God is found in it?
0: Right. Well, I think, I think what you have to, you, you're you're absolutely right about saying. In fact, recently I've talked to a, uh, you know, James Hunter, a yeah. uh, at UVA, mm-hmm. James Davis Hunter. James said that actually, uh, scientific language is the only public language allowed now. Right. In other mm-hmm. words, you can't in public, yeah. you cannot make any case unless you've got uh, empirical scientific findings. It's the only language we have. Um but uh James, by the way, is writing a book which will come out I think sometime soon. It's an academic book on why science can't be the basis for morality, basically. I mean I'll just tell you two let me give you two examples. What you want to do is not to say there's anything wrong with science, just don't make it carry water it can't carry. That's all you have to say uh, that's what chris uh, uh, two examples one is there's a philosopher Jurgen Habermas who's a very not not a christian, not in fact a very secular very respected German philosopher, very old too right now, almost 90 I think. And in the last 10, 20 years, he's been, he's been talking about the limits of science. Um, for uh, Science is really not very helpful in to help society decide social policy. And here's what he would say, and as soon as you say it, people right away say, okay, you're right. He says, science can tell you whether you can do something and science can tell you how to do it well but science cannot tell you whether you should do it or not. Hmm. It That's cannot the morality. Question, yeah, it. it can never tell you whether just because it tells you it can be done and it tells you how to do it can never tell you whether you should do it or not. And so and I remember Habermas was saying as soon as you say well how do we decide whether we should do it or not you don't look to science you have to look to kind of like religion. I mean there's no other you have to you have to start talking about morality which is something based on your faith, and science can't possibly tell you. Uh, and even if science, um, um, you know, for example, science, sometimes science will say, well, well, we know what makes people happy because we ask them. And 80% of people say when this happens, that makes them happy. But that's just self-reporting. You know, what if 80% of the people say what makes me happy is to kill the 20% of minor- you know, people in my, in my uh, country that are minorities and I'm happier when I don't see them? Would we say that's okay? We'd probably say no. But That's immoral, but, yes, but that's yeah, but the you key. See, that science can't tell you. Right? If, if science tells me that 80% of the people in this country would be happier if we got rid of the other 20%, then there would be, well, if science can't tell you whether you should do that or not, only that, that's what will make people happy. Here's another thing I could say, I, I have said to people, to try to show them the sciences of no real help on social policy and morality. One is... Um, the um, the fact that uh, a guy named Michael Sandel uh, who at Harvard has written, a, he's a, he teaches a course on justice there, an undergraduate course, very popular, and he wrote a book some years ago called Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do? And he explains that one of the reasons we have a lot of uh, debate and, and, well, polarization in our country is that there are several theories of justice, of what is just, and uh, no, we can't come to consensus. So one is called utilitarianism, which is the just thing is the greatest good for the greatest number. Uh, Then there's another approach to justice which is based on Immanuel Kant and and, and individual rights. It says no, justice is whatever frees the individual to live any way he or she wants to live. Mm -hmm. And then there's also Aristotelian, Aristotelian justice, which is justice is giving people what they deserve. And he makes the case that that the reason why you have the battles we have is that people are operating on these different theories of justice and there is no empirical way to decide which is the right one because they're based on, uh, they're based on intuitions and convictions about human nature and about human good that are basically matters of faith. And so what I would just, you know, what I just gave you is a three minute um, way of saying, science is not gonna help us live our lives. Science is, uh, even though, and therefore, unless we can allow religious voices in the public square, there's almost no way we can ever make decisions about what's right or wrong. In fact, people are using their moral faith, uh, using the science as a ruse to to push their moral agenda. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is not based on science. And we might as well be honest that science is not the basis for it. It's a matter of faith. And let's just let's take the gloves off and be honest about what's happening in the public school. Well
2: and when that person has that that faith that is science, at least the veneer of it, yeah, um, yeah how do you go about unmasking that for them? Have you had that encounter yeah, with that I, person? Well,
0: kind of like what I just said. What I'm really trying to say is the science can tell you, you know, what you know, what happens and what people say and all that, but it really can't tell you whether you should do this or not. There's no scientific basis for saying that. Usually when they say, but people say they're happier, you know, that kind of thing. But ultimately that's your definition of what a good human life is. For example, um, if somebody says people should be free to have sex outside of marriage, there shouldn't be any, you know, limitations on that. That's because you don't think that that's bad for human beings to have sex outside of marriage. And why not? I mean, way, Michael Sandel says all justice is judgmental. Now this is a, a secular man talking about this. He says, as soon as you say, there's nothing wrong with abortion. He actually says this in his book and he's pro, pro-choice pro in personally. But he says, as soon as you say uh, abortion's okay, You are making a decision about whether that's a human life or not, and there's no scientific way to define human life, none at all. If you say, well, human life is when you can make a choice, fine, you said that. That's not scientific. That's your definition. That's a moral choice. Yeah, it's your definition. And so he says there is no scientific way to decide whether whether what's in the mother, the unborn child, is a child or not. So he says, as soon as you say I'm pro-choice or I'm pro-life, and he actually is chiding pro-choice people, in, in this book, he says pro-choice people say religious people are trying to impose the morality on the country. I said, well, everybody, you're you're doing it too. Mm-hmm. Correct, in a sense, you are honest, because you are is. making you're making a moral judgment which is not scientifically based. Right, and uh, it's expedient. Yeah, because you're you're basically saying this is not a, a human being. Yeah. And and I so said, that's a judgment call. But on the other hand, admit it. And so it's, I, that's what you have to do is you have to go there and say, science just can't give okay. you those judgment
2: calls. Dr. Keller, let's uh, we're ending today. Uh, we're going to come back next time and pick up the discussion. But I think with your title, Making Sense of God, the right place to end today is to say so many people who don't have a um, – I don't want to besmirch anyone, but that deeper sense of God in their life that they that can weather – trials and suffering. A lot of the non-believers I talk to, and and I would say christian light people that aren't integrating their faith into their daily life, will often uh, fall away or not even come to the Lord's table Mm -hmm. because of the suffering issue. That if God was a good God, why would there be suffering? Why would a two-year-old die? Mm. Why would a ten-year-old die of leukemia? Uh, It's the age-old question um, that people do trip over. So I'm going to lay it out there. I mean, how do we reconcile that, that there is suffering in the world, sometimes terrible, brutal suffering that makes no sense if God is God? Well, um,
0: uh, as a pastor of of over 40 years, I have actually seen suffering draw people toward God or push people away from God. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't have a – I have an idea about why it does for some – Different than it works differently on some. It does feel to me that there are some people who are willing to say, "I really don't know enough to be mad at God." In other words, uh, in other words, I I think ancient people were more like this. I mean, ancient people suffered more than we do, probably. Mm. But you don't. Ha- it's hard to find ancient ancient people saying there can't be a God because of suffering. Generally, ancient people said, if there's a God, of course I wouldn't understand all this. They were a little more humble before the mystery. Mm. Modern people are taught that we can figure everything out. And so I do think there's um, – the people who are most likely to be drawn to God by suffering are people who are willing to say, I actually don't know enough about this to be mad at God. I can't see enough of the universe. Why should I? But I do know I need some help. And they're the ones that seem to come toward him. Other people, they are pushed away. I, I don't want to say they're proud necessarily, but I do think, it's because I do know that sometimes I've seen people die tragically and I, I've sat there saying, why that person of all the people? Right. So I, 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 I get it. But in the end, you either decide I'm not God and if I can't see the whole picture, or you decide I pretty much can, and therefore God is without excuse, and I do think that that's probably the thing that draws you toward him or pushes you away.
2: Tim, um, as we close, I'm thinking of research that we have that shows about 15 to 20% of the listenership to Focus, they're not Christian, Mm -hmm. and someone – many people are probably listening right now. So as we close today, speak to that person particularly. Why should I be compelled to pursue Christ?
0: Well, um, <clears throat> I think before you uh, look at the case why Christianity is true, you should at least see why you would might want it to be true. And that's actually what the Making Sense of God book is about. It's not so much, you know, here's how you can prove it. But what the book says is, here, Christianity offers a meaning in life that suffering can't take away from you, um, a, um, a satisfaction that's not based on circumstances, that's therefore kind of abiding. Um, It's it's strong regardless of what happens to you. A freedom that doesn't undermine love. An identity that's uh, absolutely stable and uh, gracious and empowering. A a hope that can face anything. And I actually think, at least right now, maybe other religions try to offer some of those things. Certainly the secular... Um, approach doesn't offer any of them. It does not give you a meaning that suffering can't take away. It does not give you satisfaction that's not based on circumstances. It does not give you an identity that's stable. And you ought to at least look at what Christianity offers first. And if you really see, my, that's something that would be great, then go look at the case why Christianity might be true. And that's what the Making Sense book is. This is what it offers. And I don't think most people who aren't Christians really understand all it offers.
1: Some great parting thoughts from Dr. Tim Keller. Our program was provided by Focus on the Family. And on behalf of Jim Daly and the entire Focus on the Family team, thanks for listening today. I'm John Fuller.
3: Tim Keller has managed to address a number of the most controversial topics that skeptics to Christianity may question. And hopefully has made sense of those ideas for you. What a compelling discussion that was. And we're going to hear more from Dr. Keller on tomorrow's program, so you won't want to miss that. The resource that we're recommending is part of the popular series That the World May Know. It's called The Mission of Jesus. In John 17, 26, Jesus says, I made known your name to them, and I will continue to make it known. In this 14th volume of That the World May Know, you'll deepen your understanding of this passionate revelation to a broken world that God longs to redeem. Although our office is closed at the moment, you can still place your order through our website and the team will action it next week. Our website address is safamily.co.za. And please, Remember that you can listen to this broadcast again on our website at safamily.co.za, subscribe to the podcast, or now you can even listen to all the programs on our new Focus on the Family Africa app. You may know of someone who could greatly benefit from listening to this inspirational program and you can share it with them right from the app. For Focus on the Family Africa, I'm Alison Schnell inviting you to tune in tomorrow for the conclusion of our program with Dr. Tim Keller when we will once again help you and your family thrive in Christ.